Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, hear that prayer. We need you. I need you. We each need you day by day, moment by moment. And yet we have to confess that maybe for many of us, we don't really look to you like we believe that. So forgive us, Lord, and help us in this time to receive the challenge of this word, but also, as strange as it may sound, the hope of this word. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, who bore our punishment and who was raised to life so that we might have life in his name. And all of God's people said, amen. Now, if, if we're up to me and Melissa, we probably would hardly watch any TV at all at our house. I don't know if some of you other adults are kind of over TV like we are, but, but that doesn't mean the TV's not on because let me tell you, if it's, if it's Netflix or Amazon Prime, it seems to be constantly streaming different shows. So we watch a lot of My Little Pony at my house, as you might imagine. We watch a lot of that animated series, Spirit Riding Free. You know, it's kind of horse-themed. That's sort of be pretty popular with a lot of girls. And then there's, I think it's a French-made, but it actually is in English. It's a little cartoon that the, the older girls were on that kick, and now George is on the kick. It's called Miraculous, Tales of Ladybug and Cat Noir, uh, among other dozens of different shows that we stream almost constantly. Now, even though I don't watch a whole lot of TV, particularly networks, network TV, I am aware of a series that maybe a number of you watch that's pretty popular called This Is Us. Now, in This Is Us, it apparently has a penchant for being sort of a tearjerker. There's always going to be some elements that are going to bring out the crying in, in each episode. And it's such a strong characteristic of the show that uh, comedian Jimmy Fallon made a skit about it. And in the skit, Jimmy Fallon is a sound technician working with the recording crew on the set of This Is Us. And they even had many of the, the cast and crew there to, to, to work out this skit. And every time something was about to get emotional, Dale, i.e. Jimmy Fallon, would get uncontrollably upset. And there was one time where he has the boom, boom microphone and he accidentally brushes it in the face of some of the actors and actresses and they'd have to cut the scene and then they'd start all over again. And then the next scene, he would just start boohooing out loud, and he would get louder than the, the people that are acting on the screen, and they would get mad at him. And then finally, they get just in this argument, and then and eventually they, they realize they come to their senses that, you know, we've got a lot in common, that we, we all have this tender heart, and we, we have this emotionally sensitive place, and they sort of kind of melt into this big uh, group hug and sob session. And so... That's kind of the theme of the story. Well, in a lot of ways, this story that we're looking at here in Genesis, there's a lot to cry about in a very serious way. It's no laughing matter. Now, if this were us, we would sort of come to Genesis 4 and we see about the babies coming. And that would be sort of some, some joy and excitement. Maybe we would say things like this. Are, there, are we going to have a gender reveal party? Are those... Jumbo gourmet cupcakes that we always buy that cost $27.95 a half dozen? Are they going to have blue icing in the middle or pink icing in the middle? And we break into it, oh, it's blue icing, it's a boy. And then we would halfway expect to then start planning for the baby shower. Where did you register? Target, Walmart, one of those fancy little local boutique shops? How are you going to decorate the nursery? And then 
when nine months rolled around, we would half expect them to have their iPhone pics that they post on social media and say, Cain's here, eight, eight pounds, four ounces, 22 and a half inches long. Mom and baby are fine, but boy, is that baby grumpy and moody. And even though there is some joy and hope here, it quickly turns, uh, takes a darker turn. And even though we have a couple of baby showers, if you want to put it in that term, there's a, a dark overcast shadow that kind of comes along into Genesis chapter 4 uh, from Genesis chapter 3. So we have here the first two human offspring of the first human couple. And then we have the first mention of work, of the first two human occupations. We find out that Cain was a keeper of sheep and Abel, uh, excuse me, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. And we're reminded that that was actually a very good thing. It seems to be that the birth of these, these two children and the work that's mentioned there begins to show us a little bit of the fulfillment of what God had in mind. And yet, we don't find out too long from here that, as I said, there seems to be a gray cloud hanging over this picture. We hear about the first time that people went to church, the first time they streamed the worship service, if you will. And we see Cain bringing his offering. By the way, there's no reason to see that his offering in terms of what, what he specifically brought was anything wrong with it. And yet, we know that there was something unacceptable to God in terms of how Cain brought and then what he brought. We also hear about Abel bringing his offering. He brought something that was true to the, what he was doing in his life. He brought some of those animals. And yet, as much difficulty as there has been around what exactly is going on and what is actually at the heart of why Cain and his gift was not accepted by the Lord in the same way that Abel's was, some people think it has to do with the quality of the gift. It simply says that Cain brought some of the fruit of the ground, whereas Abel brought specifically the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And maybe that there was something about not what in, in terms of it was a, uh, crops versus animal, but there was something about the quality of each and ultimately maybe about what, what message that was sending in terms of where each person's heart was. Abel was bringing something of a quality that seemed to speak of the worth of his God, whereas maybe Cain had sort of, it was sort of an afterthought. It was sort of just what was at hand or what was available possibly. And so there was two different offerings, two different acts of worship, and then there was two different outcomes, two different responses that the Lord made. And the passage says that God had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so the story begins to, to turn south from there. We find that ultimately Cain reacts to this state of affairs. Now, did God speak his acceptance and non-acceptance? Was there some kind of visible manifestation? We don't know. But apparently the message got through somehow, some way. And so whether it's he's more jealous of or angry with what Abel received or if his anger or his outrage is directed primarily to God or maybe a mixture of both, we clearly hear about how Cain becomes very angry. And he walks away from that situation. And we know that later on it's going to get much worse. And so it's not necessarily the most pleasant story for us to consider. 
But I would say to you that there is some incredible good news right in the middle of this story. You see, precisely when Cain's anger throttles up and his emotional engine begins to, begins to rev up, and just as he is seemingly turning the wheel to go down the wrong road toward an emotional booby trap, we find the Lord showing up to him and trying to address his heart and address where he's going and, and address ultimately, I think, where God sees this might go and ultimately does go. The Lord is more invested in Cain and in Cain's ultimate good than Cain himself is. That even though he's already on the wrong path and even though his act of worship has not been acceptable to the Lord, the Lord is merciful. The Lord wants to get him right. The Lord wants to change his heart. That was what Gordon Wenham, that's how he put it. He says he sees in this action that the Lord takes is actually a step to try to change Cain's heart. And that's good news because it wasn't that God just saw one thing and then just wrote him off. But God wanted to actually take him right where he was and to move him back on to a better path and to actually bring change to Cain's heart, and to actually show him the way to acceptable worship and to acceptable life. You know, this reminds me of, if you've been following along in our Bible reading plan, Psalm 23. And this is a passage that has really spoken to me a number of times, and I've needed to go back to it time and again. But if you remember those words that are so familiar that sometimes we often forget to really think about them, we think about Psalm 23, verses 1 and 3. First, it starts off, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Now, think about those words and then skip over to verse 3. It says this, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That reminds us then that Specifically, one of the ways that the Lord wants to be shepherd in our lives is to actually take us by the hand and lead us down those right paths. This is the, the thing that David understands that God characteristically does in his life. And I think that part of the reason he can say that is because the scriptures bear witness to it over and over again. Think about Genesis 2, for instance, before Genesis 3 even rolled around. When God gave them that command about don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of, the good, of good and evil, in a way that's kind of what he was doing there even before the story of Cain and Abel come around. And then we see it again in the story of Cain and Abel. We see it even when God reached out to a pagan king in Genesis chapter 20 when Abraham was passing off Sarah, his wife, as if she was just his sister and King Abimelech was going to take Sarah to be his wife and he was about to sin against God even though he didn't know about it. And what happened? The Lord was good to show up to King Abimelech in a dream and to stop him and to, to lead him on the path of righteousness, even though he had no clue that that's, he was actually about to walk down the path of unrighteousness. And David tells us why the Lord does it. It's for his name's sake, to help us realize that this is the very character of our God. It is his character to come to us before we step down the path of evil, and yes, I think even with Cain, after he began to make his way down the path of evil. And this is the, the good news that we have, is that before that choice comes, or me, maybe even after we've begun to make it, 
this God is faithful to come to us and, yes, to confront us, to question us, to begin to help us grapple with where our hearts are going. When we get off into an emotional trap and we begin to allow that to lead us and to encourage us and to make excuses for us that we might follow down a path that's going to be ungodly and lead us out of the way that God would have for us. But God is good. He will help us. So we may be tempted in the midst of this story to, to look at it and say, I'm not sure this, this applies to me. Because we may only look at the concrete way it worked out for Cain. We say, well, I would never get that angry, and I certainly would never murder somebody, much less my own flesh and blood brother or sister or parent or however it may work out. But the reality is, is that I think when we take a deeper look at the story of Cain, we find that there are several points of contact for us. The first two are the challenging part, particularly the first one, is that we're going to face the same sorts of obstacles that Cain did. We may enter into a situation, and it may be that there's no good excuse or no understandable excuse whatsoever, or it may be that we're actually on the receiving end of some injustice or some bad thing against us. Whatever it may be, we're going to probably face and probably have faced in our life many times occasions to become offended, occasions to start to nurture negative emotions in our hearts, whether it's anger or some other negative emotion. And that begins to well up in our hearts. And that's, that's part of that overcast sky that overshadows us from Genesis chapter 3. That's part of what the, the long-term consequences of that first sinful choice by Adam and Eve is that we're broken and we are vulnerable to and susceptible to these sorts of bad feelings and bad thoughts and bad desires taking root in our heart. And so we're going to face those same sort of obstacles. And we have to deal with it. And then we face with what that kind of leads us into. You know, the Lord was telling Cain, hey, if you do well, there's, there's going to be, I think, a natural a good consequence that will come from that. That you're going to be encouraged in your heart. You're going to be lifted up. That's kind of literally what the language is there at the end of that first part where he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And yet, if you continue to give place to that negative in your life, that negative emotion, that resistance, that pride, that whatever it may be, you actually make yourself, it seems to be what he's saying, even more vulnerable to sin, which is literally crouching like a vicious animal, apparently the language is even like a demon crouched and waiting to pounce on you at an opportune time. When we give place to that, we may be setting ourselves to be even more vulnerable to temptation. It's not to say that we're just innocent victims. We're not, say, we're not letting ourselves off the hook, but we are trying to be sober about the dangers that lurk even right there in our own heart. And so... When we do that, we set ourselves up to all sorts of temptation. It may not be murder. It may not be hating another person. It may be something altogether different. It may be cheating someone. It may be a matter of allowing ourselves an excuse to violate our marriage vows. It may be some other particular form of sin. But the point is that we're all going to face those obstacles. We're all going to have those times when we are emotionally vulnerable. We're reacting to some situation 
and we may be actually putting ourselves even more down a slippery slope toward choosing that sin. Which then leads us to the second reality, is that we all then face the same basic options just as Cain did. What are we going to do in that situation? Are we going to choose the path of trust in God? Are we going to choose the path of dependence upon God? Are we going to choose the path of doing God's will faithfully, even though we may not feel like it, even though it may seem impossible? Or will we allow ourselves and indulge ourselves and take the path of destruction that Cain ultimately takes? But we really can't do that unless we do the more hopeful thing that I think we can learn from the story. Not only do we face the same obstacles, not only do we face the same options that are before Cain, but we also can face the same God who faithfully will come to us and does come to us and who will faithfully confront us so that he both guides us down the right path but then also hands us, offers us the hand of help. I love how somebody put it. It says, God never simply points a finger pointing us in the direction we should go. But wherever he points the finger, he's also offering the whole hand to lift us up, to give us the ability to walk with him and to take that path even if it's tough. Now, I mentioned some of the TV shows um, that the girls like to watch. And it's amazing how there will be some profound stuff in there. I mentioned that show, Miraculous. I'd encourage you to check it out. A lot of children's shows seems like they follow, they have like a standard plot. I mean, it like follows it exactly every single time, except the concrete details are a little different. So if you watch the show Miraculous, you have Marinette and Adrian. It's a boy and a girl, and Ad, uh, Marinette has a sort of a crush on Adrian. And secretly, unbeknownst to each other, they actually turn into superheroes, Ladybug and Cat Noir, that sort of defend Paris against some of the evil things that are happening. And there's this evil figure. He's kind of a Satan-like figure named Hawk Moth. And he's off in this little secret chamber, and he's surrounded by these little moths. They kind of look kind of butterfly. And he's always looking out there into the, into the people of Paris to see if he can find a willing victim. And every single time, there's some character in the story, and they have some negative experience. In one episode, it's a guy, he's a, a mime, part of a mime troupe, and somebody else in the troupe sort of uh, betrays him and gets him kicked out of the troupe or something like that or out of the lead role. Or there's one time where there's kind of an old rock star and there's this new up-and-coming rock star who's kind of a punk and sort of uh, looks down upon the old rock star. Whatever it may be, and every, and every time something happens, a person gets hurt, they get betrayed, they get put down, and their response is to get very wounded emotionally. And you know what happens? Hawk Moth's out there looking, and he says, oh, there's that person. They are the perfect person to go see if I can slip in and, and get them to be my evil minion. And so he sends off his little moth, and this little moth kind of gets on the person, and they're transformed into sort of a a, a very distorted, very out-of-control version of themselves, and they begin to wreak havoc throughout, the, throughout the, uh, the community. And then that's when Ladybug and Cat Noir spring to the scene and ultimately become the heroes. Now, that seems sort of silly, but the reality is, is that what it, that's what it looks like sometimes. We get hurt. We get wounded. 
Or it may, like I said, may, may not have anything to do with anything that where we've experienced any injustice. It's just we don't like to how the situation is unfolding. And we open ourselves to those negative emotions. We open ourselves to those negative experiences. And we may begin to, to walk down a path where we're going to say things or do things or harbor feelings in our heart. And it's going to be destructive. And most importantly of all, it's going to be destructive of our relationship with God. And yet, even in the midst of those times, we have a God who comes to us, who's willing to renew us, who's willing to forgive us, who's willing to save us. Because that's exactly what I think we have happening here when the Lord comes to Cain before he ultimately makes the bad choice. Is that's God coming to us as Redeemer, God coming to us as Savior, God wanting to rescue us before the evil happens. And even though ultimately Cain has to, to reap what he sows, he has to absorb some negative consequences and go away from the presence of the Lord, yet even in the midst of that, God shows him mercy because he doesn't get what he deserves. He doesn't get what ultimately later God said he would, he would be called on to do, which is actually to have his own life given up in replacement for the innocent life that he'd taken. So how do we deal with this situation? I think we need to do several things. One is to, to embrace and hear that call that the Bible gives to us, especially very clearly in the New Testament. Maybe you're familiar with that language in the New Testament in multiple places where it says we are to be watchful. We have to watch against temptation. Jesus talked about it. Paul talked about it. I think Peter talks about it. We have to be on guard, and we have to be watchful. So how are we going to be watching against that very real possibility in each of us to go down a similar route that Cain went down. Maybe not as far, maybe not in exactly the same way, but down deep underneath the service, it's really the same thing. So we have to be a people who hear God's call to watch. But ultimately, we can't watch without the Lord's help. That's why I think we not only have to be people who watch, but we have to be people who wait on the Lord. Maybe you're familiar with that language in the Scripture as well. It's in the Psalms. It's in the book of Acts. It's probably in other places. But ultimately, it's a different way, I think, of talking about praying without ceasing. We have to do what Psalm 105 talked about doing. Psalm 105 says this, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. For unless ultimately we are seeking and receiving God Himself in the person of His Son, and in, in the power and presence of his Holy Spirit, ultimately, we cannot overcome these traps and these temptations. So whatever way we can practice being with God is going to be something that's going to help us then to watch against these temptations so that we can then watch God help us overcome so that even if we've already begun to turn down a right, a wrong, wrong path, God can turn us around and help us make a U-turn and be forgiven and be restored. And you know, Jesus has given us one of the greatest ways to be with him, to be in his presence, and to receive his strength. And that's here at the Lord's table. You know, we need to be reminded that when Jesus gathered around that table with those 12 people, he was eyeball to eyeball with 12 people who, to a person, we're either going to deny him 
or betray him or abandon him. And he basically spoke to them about it in advance. And he was making provision for them so that after they failed, they might know that there was a way back to him if they were willing to receive it, if they were willing to hear that call to come back and to receive again. Because we know that Judas Iscariot, much like Cain, did not hear that call. And though I'd like to block off that type of path for myself altogether, the reality is that I have to soberly look in my own heart and realize that I could walk the path of Judas just as surely as Judas and Cain did. But it doesn't have to be that way. And Jesus has made for us an abundant feast that we might receive his grace and mercy. We might receive his strength. We might receive his very presence. And so as we prepare to come this morning, we are reminded that Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, all who know their need of him and desire to receive his grace today, all who seek through God's grace to live at peace with God through his grace and live at peace and in love with each other. Therefore, let's come and be prepared to receive this holy meal. Father, we are mindful that on the night in which our Lord and Savior gave himself up for us, on that night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we're mindful that before the supper was over, he took the cup. He gave thanks to you. Gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Father, we come to you in remembrance of what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did for us, being remindful that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in faithful ministry to the whole world. We pray all of this in the name and in the Spirit of Christ. And all God's children said, Amen.